The U.S. just recorded its worst week for new cases since this pandemic began. More than half a million new COVID infections. Numbers are rising in 43 states, and roughly one-third of all new cases are coming from the Midwest. Take a look at Ohio's COVID-19 cases for today because they are frighteningly high. Nearly 4,300 cases in 24 hours. That's a new state record. North Carolina reporting another jump in coronavirus cases today. Today's 2,349 new cases are about 1,000 more than we saw yesterday. 1,175 people are currently fighting COVID-19 in hospitals across the state, the most since last Thursday. The number of people infected with coronavirus continues to mount, as does the pressure on scientists and researchers to find a vaccine. Today, we're talking about the technology that's enabling their work. This is Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. This is a moonshot for us because this can usually take five or seven years. You know, we are working, you know, with a number of different agencies to say, what can we do to not compromise safety, but do everything we can to accelerate this vaccine. I would also say that manufacturing scale up of vaccines is, is a non-straightforward task. How do you get billions of doses out very quickly? That is a huge challenge, particularly in this moment where we don't even know which technology is gonna work. So we don't even know which type of manufacturing site to scale up. Everybody needs to win. All of the vaccine makers holding you know, themselves to very high standards need to be able to be a success because the billions of doses needed to protect the planet is so huge that it's not a one company race. We may make a billion doses, but you know, the planet needs eight, nine, 10 billion. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. You just heard from Alex Gorski, the chief executive officer of Johnson & Johnson, Faz Narsimhan, CEO of Novartis, and Paul Hudson, CEO of Sanofi. Fortune has spoken with all of them over the past few months about the global effort to address COVID-19. That's right, Brian. We spent a lot of time talking to leaders of major pharmaceutical companies about the search for a vaccine and the challenges that come with it. But here on Brainstorm, we want to spend some time today talking about the technology that's making this search possible. Mihal, do you know what video games have in common with artificial intelligence systems, like really powerful artificial intelligence systems? Why, yes, Brian. Both run on chips that include second-generation real-time ray tracing technology and third-generation processor... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I think you're cheating. I may have read ahead a little bit. Please tell us. You're on the right track because what they do have in common is NVIDIA, which is a company that makes semiconductor chips and was first known for making these really powerful chips that enabled really amazing video games with incredible graphics. But they realized that the same kind of chip architecture that they had developed could be applied to other kinds of complicated computing problems like artificial intelligence. So over the last decade, They've really applied that same technology and that same framework to build chips that can be used in high-performance computers to develop artificial intelligence systems. And they've started moving into developing chips for things like healthcare. So earlier this week, I had a really fascinating conversation with an executive from NVIDIA. Kimberly Powell, NVIDIA's vice president and general manager of healthcare, told me a bit about their transition from video games to artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, so we've been in healthcare for over a decade since I started, and we started out uh, inside of a lot of the diagnostic machines, diagnostic imaging machines that we all have to use as patients, uh, whether it be a CT scan or an x-ray, because these are sensors that we're creating data now that no ordinary computers could really compute. And the scientists in this area were discovering new mathematical approaches that could say, uh, well, if we could um, reduce the radiation of CT, we'll create a bunch of noisier image, but we can use a lot of computation to get back to a very high quality image. And so we're, you know, making some of these uh, instruments safer to use and having breakthroughs there. So we are still ongoing there. You, you won't purchase a, a diagnostic instrument today that doesn't have uh, our technology inside of it. And then as artificial intelligence began to uh, explode in sort of the consumer world, one of the big bets, and it's now absolutely coming to fruition that, that NVIDIA understood too, is AI is domain specific, in fact. Um, if you think about what AI is, it's you're introducing data and you're training a computer on a specific application. And so we need to be creating domain-specific computing platforms uh, that can address the, uh, the market needs, uh, radiology, digital pathology, genomic sequencing, uh, drug discovery. These are all data sets that the, the consumer world would have never seen before. And so we, we've built out our computing platform. And, and so that's what we've been up to for the last four years. One thing that Kimberly mentioned there, Michal, was this idea of domain-specific computing platforms, which I hadn't heard before. But the idea is that if you're building an artificial intelligence system for radiology, it's going to be different from how you build your AI for something like drug discovery systems. And so NVIDIA has really spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, how to build the platform that's going to support one of these functions versus the other, because they're very different. Well, and what makes it really interesting to me is that the underlying technology here is actually the same as what powers, you know, graphics for video games. I mean, that's still what I associate NVIDIA with is like Fortnite and Halo and the technology that powers those kind of games. So what exactly is the company doing when it comes to COVID? They have really jumped into the effort to address COVID from the beginning. Early on, they partnered with the National Institute of Health. They're partnering with GlaxoSmithKline, the pharma company in the UK, to um, provide them the infrastructure they need to help develop new drug discovery programs. And I think that really the big picture thing that jumped out at me about my conversation with Kimberly is that, you know, she pointed out that coming into this year, coming into the pandemic, the pharma companies were really experimenting with artificial intelligence, but hadn't fully embraced it um, to kind of make a blanket statement. But the urgency of addressing COVID-19 is so great and so global and so universal that the companies are really plunging in and starting to use artificial intelligence and build systems that can help them crunch through and process and sort massive amounts of data way faster than they could before. And so in that sense, you know, she really sees this as a true turning point where these companies are not going to go back now that they've developed this capability and learned how to use it. And so the upside of this sort of tragic, you know, global health crisis is that uh, hopefully we'll get, you know, more efficient, faster drug discovery and vaccine development programs. But I'll let you hear more about that directly from Kimberly Powell. Here she is again. 
as a business unit as a whole, we huddled right away to say, what can we do to make a contribution? How could we help? We have research teams of our own. We have engineering teams of our own. We have massive collaborations with um, the likes of the National Institutes of Health. W- what could we do uh, to contribute? And so we approached uh, the NIH and together we put together a program to essentially create an AI model that helps uh, through radiology using CT that helps classify whether you have COVID or not. And if you think about, um, you know, our testing strategy here in the United States hasn't been extremely straightforward, but if you go back to uh, technology like medical imaging, it's a very common practice, it's readily available, and the results are potentially instantaneous. Um, and so we thought, could we use the power of medical imaging to really give a, a second option for testing? And we did just that. And we created an AI model with the NIH that does lung segmentation in a CT scan. And then it does a, a classification of whether or not do you have COVID. And actually just recently, um, we released a third model that carries on that. So do you or don't you? And then the third model is, can I segment the lesions in your lung of COVID to know really how are you responding to the disease. So really to help out the medical professionals to understand what is your prognosis. And this is a a tremendous contribution. Um, In just a couple of weeks after we put this model back into the hands of the researchers so they could build upon it, and it's now being downloaded um, tens of thousands of times per month. So CT is pretty accessible here in the United States, but but X-ray is pretty readily available everywhere in the world. So how could we create, again, yet another imaging tool that would be useful in battling this pandemic? And so we did a, a federated learning program with 20 global hospitals uh, across uh, eight different countries um, to, in just a few weeks, create a COVID model that allows you to use X-ray and predict the oxygen need of that patient in the next 24 hours. Are they going to be fine on room air? Are they going to need some kind of assisted oxygen? Are they going to need uh, even uh, ventilation? And so now this model, uh, again, we put it back into the public domain so people can use it. Uh, And so that's one way. How can we mobilize internally, leverage our clinical collaborators, and build artificial intelligence that the world could leverage? Another thing we did right away is um, we've been working with um, a lot of the principal investigators on many, many different proposals to essentially accelerate their research and, and computing. We have had many stories uh, that came out. So Oak Ridge National Labs, they have a, a technique they call docking, where you take billions of chemical compounds that could be potential antiviral drugs, and they dock them against the COVID-19 proteins to see if there's a fit with it so they can say, can we stop the activity of this protein infecting a cell? And we accelerated essentially that being able to screen these billions of drug compounds from something that would have otherwise taken many, many months to 12 hours on a supercomputer. And so when we think about you know our contribution and what we can do with computing, we think about it as a time machine. I mean, we've, we've really essentially built a time machine for these researchers. Instead of waiting three months to screen 12 billion potential drug candidates, we did it in 12 hours. 
on, on the world's largest supercomputer. And, and so our team, what we do is we, we codify all that learnings and all of that acceleration and we package it up into software and make it available so the next researcher after them can benefit from all of this great work and acceleration. So that's another way that we've, uh, we've mobilized. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you, you know, for the layperson who hears, okay, we have this, this global health crisis uh, we'll apply AI to it, and we'll we'll speed up drug discovery and drug development. What does that really mean? Yeah, I think this is an absolute pivotal moment in the area of drug discovery. This unfortunate tragedy. I think you're going to see an industry that has been struggling with a very difficult problem. I mean, human disease and discovering therapies is the world's hardest problem there is, without a doubt. And we need it to be eminent that we discover antivirals to, to fight sort of the tragic loss that we have every single day. And if you think about what's happening in biology and chemistry, like other industries, we are in a data deluge. We made a recent announcement with um, GlaxoSmithKline, a very prominent world leader in the pharmaceutical industry. And they have told us that in just the first quarter of this year, they generated more data than in their 300-year history. And if that, if that doesn't blow your mind. So, so if you just think about that, the amount of data that we can generate, we haven't been able to generate in the last 300 years, no human could put that data to use without software and artificial intelligence. And so now is the time that the, we've, we now have the data and we now are building the software platforms to learn from that data. And then we have the infrastructure to deploy that data. And so it's absolutely the right time. The pharmaceutical industry is about one and a half trillion dollar industry. It takes about 12 years for a drug to come to market. And it costs about two and a half billion dollars. They still have a, a 90% failure rate. And so there's just no question about if, it's just when, and when AI is going to become a core component of being able to increase you know, our success rates, reduce the cost, and shorten the time. And again, I call it an unfortunate, tragic, but yet an opportunity to say, this has created the opportunity for us to have to rethink, have to rethink the way we do drug discovery across the board in healthcare. It's a much more slow-moving industry to adopt cutting-edge technology like AI. Because of the pandemic, literally every corner of healthcare has had to rethink that. They have been talking about artificial intelligence, and I think there's, they were still formulating their strategy around artificial intelligence. But because of the pandemic, they had no more time to think about the strategy anymore. It's just do. It's time to just do. And so I think it was just a massive accelerator. I, I, of course, I think everybody was trying to understand AI. How does it fit in? You know, we've got the right computing infrastructure for them now, but it was just a catalyst to say, we've got the data, we have to go as fast as we can. Um, and so we've got to put this into practice now. For someone who doesn't have any of your understanding of the, the actual physics and the, the technology behind this, how do you create a chip or adapted chip for specific types of scientific use cases, it sounds, I mean, you know, you jam on computing power and make it nimbler and more efficient, but it sounds like there's also a, a development, a software development process that's part of it at this point that's different from just 
I mean, you said we need more compute, but there's some more magic to it than just more compute. I'm just trying to like, you know, parse that out so that I could understand it or, you know, a regular listener could understand what that means. AI and deep learning is a, is a brand new way of writing software applications because what you're really doing is the data is writing the application. So now that we can create all of this data, whether it's genomic sequencing data, uh, medical imaging data, electronic health record data, we can now introduce that data to the computer and it writes its own application. It learns from that data. Now, we had to get to the point where we had enough data that it could learn and it could become good at it, but we're now there. And we're now there across every single AI domain there is. So it started in computer vision. So being able to see things in the images and recognize patterns and even find features that no human was trained to find. And then we're we're also now at this incredible breakthrough of natural language processing. We've all felt it through our phones being able to transcribe, but even in just the last, um, you know, 18 months, um, we've made breakthroughs in what they call transformer technology, these transformer language models. So natural language processing is kind of having its computer vision moment just now today. And so what that means, and and we just recently uh, published a paper, we achieved state-of-the-art on what we call biomedical natural language processing. It's called Biomegatron. It's a, it's a gigantic model that took very large supercomputers to train. We essentially trained it on all of PubMed, which is all of the biomedical literature out there. No human could read it, but now you have a language model that can read it and start to make sense of it. So we have structured data with like medical images that we can build AI from. And now we have unstructured data like medical records or biomedical literature that we can now also learn from. And so it's now the computer, just if you have the data and you can introduce that data to the computer that runs these AI frameworks, they can be trained to do a certain task in both vision and natural language processing. And that's the real breakthrough. So our chips remain the same. That paradigm of data, a framework to train it, and then a way to deploy the AI is is consistent in every industry. It's really just the data and the domain that changes. And so that's how it comes about that we can build these applications more rapidly than ever and and more domain specific than ever. That must be the the geekiest AI of all that has read the entire known universe of medical terminology. Exactly. Could you imagine the applications behind that? I mean, the pharmaceutical industries are leaping at that because they can learn so much past and current. I mean, there's over a hundred papers put into PubMed an hour. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. As you pointed out, we are getting a flood of new data, new information. I mean, the assumptions that the doctors are making about how COVID attacks the body and the nature of the disease and the virus has changed dramatically over six, seven months. So how do you work that into the process? How do you make sure that you're keeping up with those changes and that putting them in the proper context of, of training the system? Yeah. And I think you're, you're getting to the core of what our platform enables is it's really the democratization of the scientists and the researchers to be able to take advantage of that new information, retrain the models and deploy those models, right? And so we, we make it as easy as possible. We create, we, inside the company, we call it the joy of cooking. You know, we create essentially the recipes in order to say, okay, at this one moment in time, we achieve state of the art. 
but let's make sure we package it up end to end, everything from labeling the data to how you augment the data before it goes into training and then training the data and then evaluating uh, the model performance. We package it all up into a recipe so that we can continuously learn. This is AI work is never done is exactly the point that you're getting at. It's never done. There's always new information coming at us and we need to build the systems and the compute infrastructure has to be ready for that continuous loop of learning because it's, it's just, it's never going to end. That's, that's not what AI is. AI is always learning. So what the world wants to know, I think, you know, right now, as much as anything is whether GlaxoSmithKline or another pharma company is going to come up with the vaccine that is going to give us relief from the virus and make the threat go away. I mean, what can you tell us about how that process is moving along or how uh, the technology is making advances that you've seen just, you know, recently? I am confident and know that in our own partnerships that everybody's in this race together. They are putting uh, their might behind it. And never I, in my history, at least, have I seen uh, the cross-section of the pharmaceutical industry, the tech industry, national governments come together to say, how do we bring all the brightest minds together so we can accelerate this? And even in that Oak Ridge National Labs example that I gave you, they've put over 250 or so of those candidates into assays, into experiment. Now, has it gone all the way through to discovering a vaccine? Not that I know of, but I know they're all in the race to it. And all of these processes in which we're improving are going to have forever more uh, positive effects. We're, we're transforming the way that we're doing discovery now uh, forevermore. We'll never go back to the old way. Data, AI, and computation everybody knows now is the path forward. It is the time machine. So from my perspective, I see AI has had a, a real meaningful impact all the way back from, from February, all the way through to now, whether it's just helping patients, helping frontline workers to helping the researchers who are trying to discover our antiviral and vaccines. There will be doses that are already made and ready to go at the end of the year. But if you talk logistically about getting it to the major proportion of the population, that will be obviously several months into 2021. But vaccine doses will likely start to be distributed on a priority basis, for example, to healthcare workers and those who are most vulnerable could be very much by the end of this year, the beginning of the year. But when you talk about hundreds of millions of people, you're really talking about several months into 2021. That voice is probably pretty familiar to anyone who's been following the day-to-day -day news of the pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci, infectious disease expert, advisor to the president, at least as of now, and head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. I'm really struck by the last part of what he said. Distributing the coronavirus vaccine to hundreds of millions of people, that's a massive logistical puzzle. Yeah, this is another spot where tech companies are trying to help. And one of those companies is Qualtrics. Um, Qualtrics is a really interesting company. They actually started more in the kind of survey analytics space and sold to academia and then made a pivot to, to private sector 
um, sales at some point, and they call their software experience management. So it's really kind of serving both customers and uh, you know employees, whomever else companies need to to hear from. But then taking that data and doing all sorts of things with it. So they've gotten pretty advanced in the analytics piece of it. So they've been able to use their sentiment and analytics software to develop new products for tackling COVID. I spoke with Qualtrics president, Zig Serafin, and here's what he had to say. Uh, There's about uh, 350 state and local governments throughout the United States that are currently leveraging Qualtrics, uh, about 90 federal offices. That includes uh, federal cabinet level uh, departments as well. And uh, during COVID-19, especially in the earlier part of this year, we were able to pivot our solutions on our experience management system to be used for contact tracing, for employee symptom checking, for patient assessments uh, with hospitals, for test scheduling, and much more. Our vaccine solution is the next step uh, in helping governments navigate COVID-19. And this is something that uh, all governments from federal to state and local are going to be able to benefit from. And so the way that the system works at a basic level is that actually on the vaccine side enables people to assess, so help to prioritize the residents that need to receive a vaccine schedule, which would be to set up appointments and then be able to follow up uh, and then certified, which is to provide a record of the vaccination uh, after the vaccine uh, has been administered and doing all of that in a digital experience. So it's from everything from the assessment stage through to the care uh, around a community member with whatever facility they might go to, and then, of course, the follow-up process and how people might be feeling as a result. So probably the most important thing in a lot of this is that we make it very easy for a lot of people to be able to participate. Uh, It's using text, it uses SMS, uses mobile applications, and so as a result, it makes it easy for communities to be able to engage. So, for example, in Arizona, they're using a part of the system today, and the uh, digital response rates for contact tracing saw an engagement go up from a previous system that they're using from about 10% to 45%. There's one thing that's really important is the idea of how we end up enabling governments, state and local leaders to be much more responsive and agile uh, and being able to take uh, actions that really matter to communities. And it isn't just simply about administration of a test, for example, or in the case of vaccines, it's really understanding the needs. Uh, And there's a really important part around trust building, which we can talk more about if you want. I would imagine there are other companies out there offering similar services, right? That can help governments track vaccine candidates, schedule appointments and things like that. Yes. Um, So Salesforce is an example of another company that's announced similar software products. But Qualtrics feels that what sets it apart is its ability to gauge sentiment around the vaccine. This is important because it then helps officials figure out the best way to encourage people to actually get the vaccine. We did a study and uh, it was a U.S.-wide study. And we found that less than 60 percent of respondents say that they have confidence in their state government to deliver on COVID-19 vaccine to their community. And then people are quite concerned just around safety, around what vaccines will be available, what vaccines could have as potentially counter effects, um, what side effects might exist. And there's people that don't think it will work. There's people that don't trust the government to deliver the vaccine, et cetera. So there's a lot of human feeling that's involved in this process and context and expectation management is going to be really important. 
So how governments have the ability to empathize, how do they connect with and create much more responsiveness and helping to be able to be transparent in the right ways with their local residents is really important. If you add to that, the fact that it's a, a massive workflow environment to distribute vaccines, um, you also have to have the ability to then engage proactively with people and understand what their needs are. And it's really, it comes down to actually understanding people, who they are, what their needs might be, given what demographic they might be from, what age they might be from, what, where they, you know, what their living conditions might be, and then how do you accommodate people in the best possible way. So it isn't just about the process. It's, you know, sentiment is a big part of the way in which you end up taking action, the way you end up building trust and confidence, but also it ends up providing other context around what might need to be done to best accommodate people and communicating with them, connecting with them, the type of providers that might make sense, the sometimes it's the cost issues or the location, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's really that whole combined experience that makes a big difference for people. Uh, and frankly, it'll affect how people end up engaging with what's available to them. So, Brian, what really strikes me here is that we have all been so focused on a vaccine becoming available. Like, I just really, really want to hug my parents finally. It's been months, um, but there's so much complexity involved here. And even once vaccines are readily available, you know, there's there's so much of a human element here and a complexity with how people feel about the vaccine and how we distribute it broadly that still remains to be seen. Yeah, I think we see that in both examples. Um, there's a major human element, as you say. I mean, NVIDIA is building these platforms and these tools to speed up the development of vaccines and treatments and testing. Qualtrics is developing tools to help people identify who needs to get the vaccine, but it's really just still putting it in the hands of people and governments to develop these treatments and to develop the system to get it out there. And, uh, you know, the good news is the tools are getting better, but people still have to execute this. Yeah. And I think, as you said earlier, Brian, if there's a silver lining here, it's definitely that we're seeing companies uh, and governments adopt technologies faster than ever before. And especially when it comes to pharmaceutical companies and to healthcare overall, hopefully that leads to some major advances coming out of COVID as well. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>